Chapter Twenty Three of One Commonplace Day by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Shadowed Lives. In one of the beautiful homes, which are so numerous on Pennsylvania Avenue, seated at an upper front window, looking out upon the passers by with that faraway air which says, I see them and do not see them, they are all as less than nothing to me, and I care not what becomes of any of them was Mildred Powers. All about her were lavish evidences of wealth and refined taste. Nothing certainly that money could buy had been spared to make this room of hers a place in which she might delight to stay. But the face which looked out from the bay window, where birds and flowers were enjoying the brightness of the day, was far from bright. There were traces of tears, and there were marks of a sorrow which tears could not relieve. It was a young face to be so shadowed. As you looked at it, you could not help hoping that time would efface the traces of sorrow. But certainly they are there now. She was quiet enough. The first storm of her grief had calmed. In her lap lay pages of paper closely written. Something in the way in which her hand grasped the papers would have led you to conclude that they had to do with her trouble, whatever it was that she had not just now given them a first reading was also evident they were held as papers with which she was and had been for some time perfectly familiar but which were nevertheless of grave importance meantime her mind was busy with a problem which she shrank from settling this letter had been in her possession for three days and she was still revolving the question whether it was her duty to take it down to her mother of course mamma must know she said to herself mournfully but ought i to give her the entire story in detail would it be wrong i wonder to tell her about it as fully as she chooses to question and let the rest pass unquestionably this would be the easier way there were sentences on those pages which she shrank from having any eye read even a mother's still ought she a young girl to have in her possession a letter one line of which she was not willing to have her mother read mamma will trust me she said aloud and half indignantly as if in reply to some suggestion from outside but all the more did it immediately occur to her that she would be worthy of the trust the end of the mental discussion was that Mildred gathered the papers into their envelope and went across the hall to her mother's room. A beautiful room, furnished with the same disregard of expense which had characterized Mildred's, and with the same exquisite regard to taste, though the colors were more subdued and the appointments of the toilet were for quiet middle life rather than for girlish tastes. The lady who sat by the open grate fire, with a light shawl thrown gracefully about her, and writing materials at her side, was an older edition of Mildred herself. Eyes and lips, and features generally, were repeated. Once you could have said the same of the hair, but Mildred's was a rich brown, while the still young mother's was plentifully streaked with grey. Sudden and heavy sorrow brings grey hairs fast. Mildred had heard her mother say this with a sigh. She thought of it that morning when she was brushing out her long brown locks. Would the gray hairs come fast among them now? Her sorrow was heavy, so she thought, poor child, and it had been sudden enough. She had not dreamed of anything like this until the letter came. The elder lady looked up on Mildred's entrance. 
"'Well, daughter,' she said with a smile, and made room for her on the couch near at hand, brushing away the accumulation of papers and a book or two. Mamma said Mildred, talking rapidly and not heeding the movement, "'I had a letter come the other day.' "'So Maria told me.' The voice was quiet, the eyes still smiling. "'I have been biding my time.' I knew you would want to show it to mother after a while, for I saw that it troubled you. Mamma, with a little catch in her breath that told of strong and suppressed emotion, I did not know how to show it to you, but I thought I ought. In the first place, you will not understand, it is from a gentleman a stranger. Mrs. Powers removed her foot from the hassock and sat erect, drawing her shawl about her with almost a shiver, and, as Mildred again paused, said, "'Well, daughter,' her voice tender but alert, "'what new danger was this? The world was full of wolves, and she had but one very choice lamb.' "'Mamma, you need not be afraid, not in that way. It isn't anything foolish. He is a gentleman whom I met while I was with Fanny Copeland. I don't know him much, only he is a Christian gentleman, a temperance worker.' He seeks out young men who need help and tries to help them. I had an opportunity to speak to him alone for a moment. I knew he was going to Chicago, and I gave him Leonard Airedale's address and said that I thought perhaps he needed help. I did not ask him to write to me, Mamma. of course not. I did not give him permission to mention my name to Mr. Airedale. I just spoke to him as you might speak to a good man, of one whom you thought he might be able to help. I did in all respects as I thought you would like your daughter to do. I know, daughter, I trust you fully, and now this gentleman has written you about him, pleading for him, I suppose, and you are a little afraid to have mother see the letter. But, daughter, it is surely right that I should do so. Thank you for coming to me. And she held out her hand. Mildred dropped the letter into it without another word, and, passing, went over to the window, where she looked blindly down on the people below. There stands Mildred Powers, framed in just the right light to make a pretty picture of herself, said one of the passers-by, glancing up as she spoke, all the prettier because she is utterly unconscious of it. If that girl isn't a favorite of fortune, I don't know who is. Wealth and leisure and beauty and friends, nothing to trouble her, nothing to worry about in any way and a general favorite with all the people worth knowing. Yet she has buried her father. I know, and the speaker's tones grew gentler, but he was a grand man, ready to die, and time, you know, has softened that sorrow. Her father is simply a beautiful memory to her, which it helps her to recall, and her mother is young and well and devoted to Mildred. It is difficult to see how the troubles of life, which they say come to all people, are going to get a chance to touch her. And the speaker sighed as though she had felt the touch of trouble in no gentle form. Yet at this moment the sheltered girl of whom they spoke carried the sorest heart which she thought it possible for any one to have, and looked at the speakers with eyes that were blinded by a rush of bitter tears. Mrs. Powers pushed writing-desk and papers from her, and grasped at that letter with a long-drawn sigh of suppressed disappointment. The one anxiety of her life was pressing up again, and had brought with it perhaps a strong ally, and she must combat her daughter's wishes all alone. If her father were only here! 
the widow did not speak those words aloud she only sighed them into the ears of the infinite and pitying god then she began to read my dear miss powers you did not give me permission to write to you yet i have that to say which is just what you should hear in the first place i have to ask your forgiveness and your mother's i have exceeded the bounds of the commission given me i found the young man of whom you told me and found as you surmised that he needed a friend and in order to give myself a chance of befriending him i was obliged to say that i was a friend or at least an acquaintance of yours now to my story i was hurrying to my boarding-place on the third evening after my arrival in chicago i had spent some hours in search of the person whose name you gave me without avail he had left the employment of the firm mentioned and i could get no clue on this evening as i was hastening uptown i saw a young man standing studying the water below him in a way that boded no good at first i passed then felt impelled to turn and speak i received an unsatisfactory answer but for some reason i could not bring myself to leave the man i tried to draw him into conversation to win his confidence the more i tried the more sure i felt that he was in peril and needed help two young men passed by both partially intoxicated and spoke to the stranger calling him by name i recognized the name as the one you had given me it was then and there that i exceeded my instructions and tried to rouse the man by speaking your name and claiming myself as a friend of yours and his i think it was because of this that i succeeded in getting him to go home with me it was well i did i hope and trust we may by this means have saved a soul he was at that time under the influence of liquor i just succeeded in getting him inside my own door when he fell against me heavily not in a drunken stupor but with something more serious it proved to be a sort of fit the brain was seriously congested and the physician whom we promptly summoned gave it as his opinion that the poor fellow would not live till morning i hasten over the days which followed to tell you that he is now living and on the road we trust to mental and physical recovery he has had a very alarming illness and still lies in a weak state this is only part and perhaps for his friends not the hardest part of the story i have been with him much during his illness spending the greater portion of my nights in his room as in the fever of delirium he clung to me i have learned to know a great deal about his past and it is a sad record of late he has been going down very rapidly he fell in with a hard class of young men but truth compels me to state that he was their leader rather than their follower he went astray in almost every way that you can imagine in many ways that i rejoice to believe you cannot imagine he was discharged by the employers whose address i had because of dissipation on the evening in which i found him he was not so much intoxicated as to be unaware of what he was doing he had as i feared planned self-destruction i thought i saw that in his face as i passed he was in deep trouble which came clear to us during the time that he lay in delirium he had become involved in pecuniary trouble had gambled as sooner or later nearly all drinkers do and in a fit of drunken despair had forged the firm name of his former employers for not a very large amount but quite large enough to send him to the state's prison 
the matter was not sharply managed and came to light before he had a chance to get out of the country it was the belief that he was being shadowed by the police which had determined him to make what he called an end of the whole miserable business his idea of the end was to drown himself when the facts of the case came to light some of the christian men in the city took hold of the matter visited his employers secured a stay of proceedings and eventually secured a compromise his mother was telegraphed for and came on at once exerting herself earnestly in his behalf we were enabled as soon as the delirium passed to give the poor man the news that he would not be arrested for forgery that the matter was settled and the sinner forgiven he appeared grateful and shed some tears but i must own to you what in your sheltered life you probably do not realize that sin has a way of blunting the sensibilities he was neither so grateful nor so penitent as you might have supposed i do not think he was deeply overwhelmed with the sin of what he had done but simply with the thought of consequences and these being averted he was ready to take hold of life again i urged him to sign a pledge to let his worst enemy alone for ever but he assured me that he could do that without signing any pledge that he had drank his last drop i hope this is so but i have little faith in it perhaps the poor fellow must drink deeper of the dregs of sin before he will consent to be saved and now my friend there is another and a very dark side to this sad picture of a perverted life there came repeatedly during the earlier days of his illness and unconsciousness a poor sorrowful-looking young woman quite young only a child she would have been called in a sheltered home with a loving mother to watch over her but she has neither a mother nor father she did not however look like a sinful woman she expressed the most intense anxiety for the sick and as we thought dying man day after day she came and begged to see him when we told her that he was entirely unconscious and would probably remain so she broke into a perfect passion of tears and begged to sit beside him for only a little while at last i asked her as gently as i could what reason she a young girl had for expecting to be admitted to the room of a young man who was no kin to her i assured her that he had the best of care the most skilful of physicians there was nothing she could do for him how could she expect to be admitted and why did she wish it the poor thing lost every vestige then of her attempted self-control and assured me with bitter sobs that she was the young man's wife of course i was shocked and dismayed but when i questioned and cross-questioned she told a straightforward story it was a secret she declared and she was not to reveal it she would not have done so for anything in the world only if the man was going to die she must and would see him once more i took her to his mother she undertook to prove the falseness of the young woman's story assuring me that it was not possible earnest investigation on her part and on mine established beyond a shadow of doubt the truth of the poor girl's statement the young man was intoxicated at the time he had not realized in any sense the step he was taking nevertheless he took it they went to the house of a clergyman in the suburbs and whether the reverend gentleman was so accustomed to the fumes of liquor about young men as to take no notice or whether he thought the matter was not of his concern i do not yet understand however it was 
he performed the ceremony which made them husband and wife. That was two months ago last Friday night, since which time the girl has seen but little of him, and it was his deliberate intention to desert her and make his escape to some foreign port, where he told me he had meant to turn over a new leaf and live as he ought. No sense of the solemnity of the vows which he had taken seemed to impress him. On the contrary, he appeared to be overwhelmed with astonishment that even his mother should tell him it was his duty to recognize the young woman as his lawful wife. "'But I did not mean to marry her,' he said. "'I was drunk when I did it.' "'My dear Miss Powers, I have thought it my duty to tell you this long, sad story plainly. For, however painful it may be to his friends, it is necessary that they should know the truth.' His steps have been downward for the past year, to an alarming extent. I am to remain in Chicago some two or three weeks yet. If your mother desires me to serve her in any way in this connection, I shall be glad to do so. Of course you will communicate with her, and if I hear from her, I shall make it my first effort to execute her will. If there is nothing further to be done, of course I expect no reply to this." Mrs. Airedale is now with her husband, caring for him as a wife can. She is young and ignorant, but loving and good-intentioned, and deceived. She has gone as no daughter could go who had a true mother, and she has a sad harvest to reap, I fear. I am at work for my master, and recognize you as one of the laborers. Therefore I make no apology for burdening you with the details of this account." I kept my pledge, and shall continue the name on my list for work and prayer. Yours in Christian Bonds, Scott Durant End of chapter 23